0: you understand that Satan shows up in heaven, just like you read in Job 1, and he accuses Christians to the Father again and again and again. And boy, does he have material to present his case. But because Christ intercedes for us, the Father will never receive those accusations.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you ever tried to break an ongoing bad habit? Is it possible that one bad habit, if not confronted, could lead to a life-altering outcome? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom is continuing our current series with Part 6 of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. We're continuing to look at how true Christians respond to their own sin. Today, Tom will remind us that true believers don't deny their sin. They admit it. They've come to hate their sinfulness. And though imperfect, true Christians don't want to commit sin anymore. They want instead to grow in holiness. They want to put off sin and trust solely in the work of Jesus Christ. Friend, open your Bible now as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. Sin continues to reside in our flesh and will
0: until we're with the Lord, verse 8, unlike the claim of the false Christians. And it's true that we will still commit sins as a believer, unlike the claim of the false Christian in verse 10. All of those things are true. But John's purpose in telling us those things was not to make us more comfortable with our sins or to make us take our sin lightly. John's real purpose, he states here, literally, if you take the tense of the verb, you could translate it like this. I'm writing these things to you that you may not commit even one act of sin. In other words, he's saying, if you're a true Christian, you don't want to sin. Sin's a reality you have to deal with, but it's not like it's something you desire or want to participate in. You hate it, and you want to be done with sin. You want never to commit sin again. Go back to Romans chapter 6. This is exactly what Paul said, you remember? In fact, start back in chapter 5, verse 20, as he finishes talking about Christ as our representative and, and he stood in our place as Adam did. Verse 20, he says this, the law came in, so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, his mercy is more. True. But Paul realizes as soon as he says that, that there might be some who take that and twist it and misunderstand his point. And so notice chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, listen. It doesn't really matter. There's grace covers. His mercy is more. Let's just do whatever we want. No, that's not the Spirit. Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He says, listen, if you're a Christian, there has been a radical change in you. You are not the person you once were. You died. The person you used to be died when you came to Christ. You were born again. You were given new life. You were made a new creation, given a new nature. And you don't want to sin. You want to live the new life that represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what you want. 1 Peter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, listen to this, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the heart of a true Christian. Yes, a true Christian sins, but when he sins, he confesses it, he, he turns from it, he wants never to commit that sin again, he hates it, and he desires to be like Jesus Christ. That's the heart of a true Christian. Now go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John obviously doesn't mean that he expects sinless perfection. He's just said that false Christians deny acts of sin. True Christians actually confess sin every day of their lives. So he doesn't mean sinless perfection. What he does mean is this. Christians don't deny or excuse their sin. Instead, they hate it and they desire not to sin. They desire not to sin once. They desire to be holy. That's their goal, their mindset, their attitude, and that becomes a reality. Remember chapter 1, verse 7, the true Christian experiences a decreasing pattern of sin in his life and an increasing pattern of righteousness. So, a true Christian admits and hates his sin and pursues holiness, and Secondly, he trusts Christ. As we continue to break this larger statement apart, he trusts Christ and his work for his sins. That runs from the middle of verse 1 through verse 2. And this verse and a half, actually they touch on two aspects of the work of Christ. When you sin, your mind goes to Christ. Your mind goes to what he is accomplishing and has accomplished for you. That's what should happen. First of all, you trust his intercession as our high priest. His intercession as our high priest. Verse 1 says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here is a word of hope for us who are conscious of our sin, conscious of our failure, conscious of our unworthiness. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Let me let you in on a, on a little bit of Satan's deception. I know you've experienced this because I've experienced this. This is what all believers experience. Before you sin, Satan comes and he says, listen, this is really not that big a deal. It won't hurt. Do it once. You'll enjoy it. You move on. There are no issues. It's a little thing. And then you choose to sin. And what does Satan say then? He comes back to you and he says, oh my word, I cannot believe how badly you blew it. Don't you dare go back to God. He is the last person in the world he, that you are the last person in the world he wants to see. Don't you even think about going back and repenting now. That's just, that's just easy. You need to live under a little penance for a while. That's what you need to do. This is how Satan works. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the devil is constantly present. He is the adversary of our souls, and if we find ourselves having sinned, he comes to us and whispers, you have no right to go back to God. How can God ever forgive you? Well, this passage is for us. Notice what he writes, and if anyone sins. Now, this is clearly adversative, so it's better to translate this word, and it can be translated but. So let me read it. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone sins, and the Greek verb tense here points to individual acts of sin, not a continuing pattern of life like we saw back in chapter 1, verse 6. Instead, this verse and chapter 1, verse 9, these two verses together make it clear that acts of sin are part of every Christian's experience. And I love what he writes. Notice what John says If anyone sins, we have an advocate. As an 80-year-old plus apostle, John includes himself with those who sin and those who need an advocate. Literally, the Greek text says this, if anyone sins, we are having an advocate. In other words, this is Christ's constant activity in heaven. But what is an advocate? Well, the Greek word is parakletos, which appears only in John's writings here in this letter and four times in his gospel. In John 14 through 16, those chapters in the upper room discourse, it occurs four times where it's translated helper and every time it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is a compound word that literally means to call to one side. It came to mean Someone called in for your aid, your help, an advocate, one who pleads the cause of another. Christ is explicitly called our parakletos, our helper here in 1 John 2.1. But he implies that he is in a statement he makes in John 14.16. There in the upper room discourse, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That is a helper in addition to me who will be with you forever. So, we have two advocates. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, 26, the the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And our Lord, Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. We have two intercessors. Now, this word advocate here has or it has often and it does here a legal connotation that's led some to refer to Jesus as our divine defense attorney and that's okay as far as it goes i'm not convinced that's the best direction to go because that language implies an adversarial relationship between us and god and jesus has to be our defense attorney in addition this word when it's used in secular greek in legal context doesn't refer almost always to a defense attorney. Instead, it refers to a friend, a friend who testifies in court on your behalf. That's Jesus. He is our advocate. He is a friend who speaks up on our behalf. Now, when this word refers to Christ, the word advocate, it really refers to one specific activity, his work as our high priest. You understand that Jesus right now Is continuing to serve on your behalf he serves in heaven as your high priest he continually represents us before the father because his priesthood is an eternal priesthood hebrews 7 verse 23 and following the former priest of the old covenant on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus will never stop being your high priest. And oh, by the way, his, his priestly representation is for his own. John 17, verse 9 Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer there and says, I ask on behalf of my disciples, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me for they are yours. His, his advocacy, his intercession is for his own. Now, let me just ask you honestly, do you think, I'm not saying this is your theology, I'm more saying is this how you practically think that what Jesus did at the cross was, that was really important And nothing right now is going on that's that important. Obviously, the cross is the center of everything. We'll talk about that in verse 2 the next time we study this passage. But I don't want you to underrate what Christ is doing now. In fact, listen to Hebrews 7.25 again. He is able also to save forever forever those who draw near to God through him, how can Christ ensure that your salvation is forever? Here it is, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The primary ministry of Jesus' priesthood is intercession. And that's the heart of what we're talking about when we say he's your advocate. He is your high priest who intercedes for you. But what do we mean when we say Christ intercedes for us? Well, let me just give you a little list, and I'm not going to be able to go into them, but I hope you will jot them down. I hope you'll think about these and meditate on them. Here's what Christ does in his intercession for you as a high priest. Number one, he entered the true holy of holies in heaven and presented his perfect sacrifice to the Father. Hebrews 9.24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now, listen to this to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, to appear in the presence of God for us. You see, Christ's constant presence before God as the sacrifice for our sins is in itself part of His intercession for for us. Because by His very presence, He constantly reminds the Father that He made perfect provision for our forgiveness through His sacrifice. John Calvin writes, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. Charles Wesley, in a hymn that we've begun to sing again with a new melody, puts it this way Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They, that is the wounds, pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. That's Christ's intercession. Number two. He prays for the eventual salvation of all the elect. John seventeen twenty again, in his high priestly prayer that's recorded for us in Scripture, he prays this, I do not ask on behalf of these, that is the eleven alone, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus was praying for those who hadn't been born yet, for those who hadn't come to faith yet. Jesus prays for all the elect, whether they have believed yet or not. Acts eighteen nine and 10, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, he says, go on speaking, don't be silent, I'm with you. For I have many people in this city. This is before they trusted in Christ, before they came to genuine faith. The Lord says, I have many people in the city. So you keep on preaching because the Father's gonna draw them to himself through your preaching. So he prays for the eventual salvation of the elect. Number three, he defends us against all charges Satan brings against us. This gets to the heart of, of 1 John 2.1. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is described as the accuser of our brethren. Listen to this. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Do you understand that Satan shows up in heaven, just like you read in Job 1, and he accuses Christians to the Father again and again and again. And boy, does he have material to present his case. But because Christ intercedes for us, the Father will never receive those accusations. Romans 8 33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who declared us right with him through the work of Christ. Who is the one who can condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, Jesus prays for our forgiveness from our daily sins so that those sins will never condemn us and nothing Satan says about us will ever stick. The Father simply will not receive it. Number four, he prays for the sanctification of all true believers. Again, back to John 17, verse 17. He prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He prayed for the sanctification of the eleven. And he prays for your sanctification and mine that we would grow in holiness and likeness to him. Number five, he prays for and supplies grace for us in our trials and temptations. He prays for and supplies grace for us in our trials and temptations. Hebrews 2.18, since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. But I love Hebrews 4. In fact, look at it with me. Flip back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 4. You need to be familiar with this passage. Verse 14, therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Stop there for a moment. Tempted in all things as we are. That doesn't mean Jesus faced every single possible temptation to sin. What it does mean is he faced temptations in every category you face temptation and yet without sin. Therefore, and I love this verse. How do you respond to that knowledge? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. When? When we're tempted and when we sin. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy, the mercy of forgiveness, the mercy of help, and find grace to help in time of need. Again, when we sin, Satan comes to us and says, don't you even think about showing your face before God. He doesn't want to see you. You need a little time to pass. If you haven't heard that lie, you're probably not a Christian. I've heard it many times. But what's our response to be? Verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of God's grace, where grace is dispensed, so that we may receive his mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because of our high priest who makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven. Number six, he prays for our spiritual protection and perseverance. The best example of this is Jesus' prayer for Peter in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. You knew, you know what was about to happen. He was about to be tempted to betray our Lord, and he did. But listen to what Jesus says to Peter, Luke 22:31, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat." In other words, Satan wants to destroy your faith, Peter, and guess what? He wants to destroy your faith, too. He wants to destroy my faith. So how does that not happen? Well, our Lord goes on to say this, "But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail." Christian, you're going to make it. Your faith is not going to be destroyed because Christ Is interceding for you. He is praying for you to ensure that you will make it all the way to glory. Number seven, he sanctifies our prayers, worship, and all our spiritual activities to make them acceptable to God. You say, that needs to happen? (laughs) Absolutely, that needs to happen. I love what one of the Puritans said. He says, even our repentance needs to be repented of. That's so true. Everything we do has sin all mixed in with it. Our motives are always distorted, some good, some bad. Our, our hearts are never fully free from sin. So even our worship, our best moments this morning, do you believe that the worship you have offered to God this morning in this place with God's people is truly worthy of the God that we worship? The answer is absolutely not, and neither is mine. So how does God receive it? And the answer is the intercession of Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Peter 2.5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. The picture here is of us as Christians together framing a temple. We're like a temple, you and me, the people of God. We're like a temple in which worship happens to God. And then he says this, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How can you and I offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God? Listen to the next phrase through Jesus Christ. He's interceding on our behalf before the Father. And He's saying, Father, they're, they're mine. They're, they're yours. And yes, they're still fraught with sin. They're still, their motives are still mixed. Yes, they still don't worship with their whole heart as they ought. They still don't get how great and how strong Powerful and how merciful and how good you are and therefore worshiping you as you deserve, but they belong to us. Receive the worship that they bring through me because of me. Number eight, he prays for the eventual glorification of his people. John 17, 24, at the end of that great high priestly prayer, he says, "'Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world.'" Jesus praise Father, bring them all the way to glory. I want you to save them. I want you to make them like me. And I want you to bring them into my presence so that they're always with me, always praising, always reflecting my glory in their moral characters. Christian, you're going to make it because Christ is interceding that you will one day be just like Him and in His presence forever. That's His prayer. And here's the really good news, as you look at those, those eight ways Christ intercedes, the really good news is that what Jesus prays for always happens. John eleven forty two, 42, he says to the Father, you always hear me. You always hear me. God always answers the prayers of his son. So Christian, coming back to, to 1 John 2, in this moment as you sit here, in every moment of your life, and don't miss this. This is the context of 1 John two one. At the moment that you have sinned, at that moment, you have an advocate with the Father. You have one interceding on your behalf in all of the ways that we've just learned together. One who constantly intercedes on your behalf. Before the throne of God above, I have a sure and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me my name is graven on his hands my name is written on his heart I know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart that's our high priest who intercedes and that friends is how true Christians respond to their sins they don't deny them They admit them, but they hate them. They don't want to commit them anymore. They want to grow in holiness. They want to put sin off. And they trust solely in the work of Jesus Christ. Next week or next time, we'll see his work of propitiation as a substitute. But today, his work as a high priest in his intercession. That is our hope. Let's pray together.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 6 of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Join us next time for Part 7 as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one word And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed.